Hello, and welcome to today's podcast. My name is Devin Cohen. I'm a partner of Ropes and Gray's healthcare practice group based in Boston. I represent providers, payers, and investors in value-based collaborations, alternative payment models, and vertical integration transactions with a core focus on insurance requirements and payer-provider alignment. With me today is Brett Friedman, a partner in our healthcare practice group based in New York. Now, Brett represents clients in areas such as government insurance programs, digital health, accountable care, and value-based payments and regulatory compliance, really leveraging his prior experience as his former head of the New York State Medicaid program. Thanks, Devin. Uh, excited to do this podcast with you today. Well, let's dive in. There's been a lot of payer-provider alignment activity in the market over the last several years, particularly in the joint venture space. We've seen joint ventures between DaVita and Blue Cross Blue Shield of Minnesota, and with Cigna and Walgreens, just to name a few. We're continuing to see a push towards value-based care akin to these models, but increasingly through joint ventures rather than traditional mergers and acquisitions. Now, Brett, what do you think are the top reasons for this trend towards JVs between payers and providers in particular? Yeah, no, that's a great question, Devin. And I think there are really a few reasons. Um, first, traditional vertical integration, whereby there's a straight acquisition by a plan of a provider or provider entity or similar alignment models require a laundry list of and sometimes onerous regulatory approvals. Um, rather, if you do a contractual or equity JV, it's a structural opportunity that would allow the parties to achieve their business goals while in many cases limiting the need to receive a regulator's blessing prior to closing. That's really the biggest reason. The second reason is really payment opportunity. Um, there have been a, a plethora of federal programs and policies, including those that we've seen over the last eight to 10 years from the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation that have created opportunities in the marketplace for value-based care. Uh, and because of these provider-payer alignment opportunities, the way that care is compensated and how providers are being paid is changing. Doing these arrangements through a JV would provide a model of support for these novel payment methodologies that can promote those mutually beneficial outcomes for payers and providers alike. Still, those payments through a JV may still need to comply with a ton of regulatory and state laws governing mainly fraud and abuse. Um, OIG is really the primary regulator here, uh, and they've you know, really for you know, 30 years have been identifying concerns with joint ventures uh, when those joint ventures increase referrals between or among uh, healthcare beneficiaries, um, such as those who receive Medicare and Medicaid, or through which one party provides capital towards the JV, um, but not really sweat equity in the partnership. Finally, there are a lot of opportunities and ways to share risk between members of a joint venture uh, their affiliates that support their operations, uh, and then the providers who participate and actually deliver the care. Um, through this last prong, stakeholders really need to keep in mind antitrust considerations to make sure there's not impermissible collusion or data sharing. Uh, and so with those considerations top of mind, uh, you know, a JV can really be uh, a beneficial structure, but one where compliance concerns need to be front and center. I, I agree, Brett, but there, there's a lot to unpack um, on these regulatory considerations. So trying to take it one step at a time, let, let's start with the implications for joint ventures under the federal anti-kickback statute, false claims act, civil monetary penalties law, the fraud and abuse laws we're all 
uh, familiar working through. Now, given the payment to healthcare professionals under most joint venture models involving payer providers or even payer payers, whether that's through an equity distribution services agreement or a participating provider agreement, the anti-kickback statute in particular is relevant, especially when the joint venture results in substantial service area of service line expansion, as Brett was discussing. This is an area that the OIG has long viewed as potentially suspect, particularly in contractual joint ventures. Now, these joint venture parties share aligned priorities in promoting improved quality, reducing healthcare costs. Beyond payments to healthcare professionals participating in or supporting the joint venture, these aligned incentives promote patient engagement and potential or opportunities for transfers of value to plan enrollees, whether it's an iPad to promote a primary care physician telehealth visit or remote patient monitoring, uh, free transport, uh, gift cards uh, uh, for completing intake questionnaires. It, you know, patient engagement is not prohibited under these laws. In fact, more recent safe harbors to the anti-kickback statute and exceptions to the civil monetary penalties law from 2020 provided really more expansive, although I'll say untested from an enforcement perspective, opportunities to promote patient engagement while posing a low risk of harm to beneficiaries of federal health care programs. In addition, the OIG nominal gift guidelines, particularly under the civil monetary penalties law, has set annual thresholds for permitted non-cash or cash equivalent transfers of value to enrollees set at either $15 uh, per, per transfer um, or $75 per member per year, of course, changing by inflation almost annually. Now, Many times, the government's decision to commence an enforcement action focuses on whether the joint venture partner payments or the inducements pose more good than harm to these programs. Now, from your perspective, Brett, what are regulators looking at when they're balancing these considerations? It's a good question, Devin. It's not really my perspective. It's really the OIG's perspective. Um, and looking back to their history of guidance, whether through special fraud alerts or advisory opinions, they tend to focus on three things, right? Number one is, is it unlikely that the joint venture will interfere with clinical decision-making? Um, second, is it unlikely that the joint venture will increase costs through overutilization or inappropriate utilization of services that are reimbursed by Medicare, Medicaid, or other federal healthcare programs? Uh, and does it not raise patient safety or quality of care concerns? Um, in framing all of these, I'm cognizant that they're all framed in the negative, um, but I think it's helpful to think about it if you frame it in the positive, which is, do these programs supported through a joint venture improve quality and lower cost? To that end, generally acceptable low-risk access to care freebies for programs like smoking cessation, access to primary care, uh, other support groups, or even the provision of childcare or transportation to get to healthcare appointments could all be appropriate. Um, but really, it's looking at overall, you know, is the federal healthcare program spending more money? Um, and, you know, in a lot of these payment opportunities, they're not because the programs themselves are designed to, to save money through provider payer incentive alignment. Yeah. And it's a bit of a mystery, though, on how far payers and providers partnering in this space can really go to that end, Brett, and be eligible for protection under relevant safe harbors, 
OIG enforcement positions or otherwise, right? We know the government is accepting more broad understandings of permissible value-based enterprise structures and, and permissible care coordination for patients. But against that backdrop, there have been reported civil investigatory demands for providers relating to beneficiary outreach and free transport. What the industry really hoped would develop into a bit more bright line rules is, is still a gray area, leaving payers and providers with risk determinations and compliance levers that they can be exercising in order to promote access to essential services while reducing risk of harm. Now, something the government has been crystal clear on relating to beneficiary engagement is the need to protect some of the nation's most vulnerable populations who are impacted by joint ventures from false or misleading advertisements, aggressive marketing campaigns, or abuses to consumer protections. And, you know, I, I think it would be interesting to talk through how, how does that come into play in the payer-provider joint venture space? And that's something that we're seeing a lot, Devin, I think some of the more novel questions that we're getting in this area. Really, I think to focus on, this goes back to your point on vulnerable populations, the issues arising most in the Medicare Advantage context um, and the requirement to identify how the joint venture can either directly engage in marketing or support a contracted provider partner in marketing to Medicare Advantage enrollees consistent with the longstanding Medicare marketing guidelines. Um, and so really it's this concept that is not new, but if the provider is contracted with a payer and the provider is the one with the patient relationship, are they engaged in impermissible or suspect white coat marketing? Um, here, the concept of marketing is subject to CMS approval so that if the provider is engaged in marketing, uh, without CMS approval, they can get into a lot of trouble. Um, and getting CMS approval is often onerous and administratively burdensome. Critically, the first thing to do is to ask yourself, is what the provider is doing marketing? Um, and the way that marketing is typically defined is communications, materials, activities that are designed to promote enrollment in a Medicare Advantage plan. And so a provider can say a lot of things to a patient, even in connection with the joint venture, that is not enrollment. Um, but there's an intent standard that is met if the marketing communications or marketing materials are intended to do really one of three things, right? Draw a beneficiary's attention to a specific Medicare Advantage plan. Um, two, influence a beneficiary's decision making process with regard to when to select a Medicare Advantage plan, which is particularly important, especially around the open enrollment period. Um, and three, to influence a beneficiary's decision to stay enrolled in a plan, right? So retention-based marketing. Um, and so CMS evaluates that, that intent in looking at whether a communication or a marketing material uh, is, is you know, providing objective information or if it's really intended to influence um, those decisions based on the nature of how the information is communicated, how it's timed, uh, as well as the context around which the communication is made um, in connection with the partnership uh, that the provider may have with the Medicare Advantage plan. And putting the intent to the side, there's a second prong, right? The content standard. 
That's right. And, and, you know, that's like what's actually in the material itself. Um, and so if there is specific content in the communication and material, it's going to be marketed, right? That content is anything that describes a particular Medicare Advantage plan's benefits, their benefit structure, their premium, their cost sharing, right? Anything, what, what that plan provides. Um, the second piece is, you know, anything that discusses how good the plan is, right? Measuring or ranking system star ratings um, being the big one, because that's a comparative measure on how good one Medicare Advantage plan is against another. Uh, and then the third is whether the plan is offering any specific beneficiary rewards and incentives, um, like some of the things you mentioned earlier, um, that could be considered beneficiary inducements. And I think that that's overlaid, right, in a world of third-party marketing organizations or TPMOs, new regulations that just came out this spring seeking to really limit the ways certain payers can contract with those type of marketing organizations, must oversee them, should record enrollee outreach calls, um, and ensure adequate disclosures to consumers um, is really helping to level set that, that playing field, much like the Medicare marketing guidelines. Luckily, those regulations also require information be provided across a region's most prevalent languages, which will greatly benefit potential enrollees, which is you know one of the OIG's most ultimate aims here. That's right. It all comes down to patient harm, patient understanding, and quality of services. There's a real risk to payer and provider partners if they communicate this information incorrectly with enrollees, overstep the lines, or otherwise get it wrong. Um, and at the end of the day, um, if the provider is doing you know, a form of marketing or what could be construed as marketing, um, you want to make sure that what you're really paying for are the bona fide services that the provider is doing in connection with a specific care delivery model. And if you're not careful about how you define the services and how you define the compensation for those services, you could really end up in, in a kickback statute land because the payment that the joint venture or the plan is making to the provider could look like a conversion fee, right? A fee that is paid only upon the member getting referred through enrollment in a particular plan. Uh, and so we do a lot of advising on the space about how to appropriately structure and safeguard those arrangements so it's not an impermissible conversion fee in violation of the anti-kickback statute. Uh, and the way to do that is really to think about it under the personal services and management contract safe harbor. You want to delineate the services clearly. You want to make sure that the compensation that you're paying for the services is consistent with fair market value and is otherwise commercially reasonable. You want to keep the care management payments as fixed as possible so they're not varying by the value of the member enrolling in a plan. Um, and we always think it's helpful too, consistent with this beneficiary-centric aspect of the analysis, that service level agreements or other quality measures uh, are imposed in the agreement so that you're, you're really focusing again on the bottom line. Is the care good? Um, are patients well-served? And oversight really exists outside of, you know, so to speak, anti-kickback uh, world, right? Where we're, we're we're seeing it implemented across payer provider joint ventures, in particular, as traditional change of control and affiliate contracting requirements 
are implicated under the National Association of Insurance Commissioners or the NAIC requirements. You know, a lot of state divisions of insurance really require, and state legislation models further require NAIC standards. And this becomes really relevant when the parties are partnering to develop a new plan in a payer provider uh, model, build out market presence of an existing plan, or otherwise develop an asset that will support the health plan operations, even you know, contracted services provider relationships. No, that's right, Devin. Um, anytime you have a payer provider joint venture that is going to result in a new insurance business or a new insurance product, um, i.e. a new health plan, um, that entity is going to need to apply for uh, a, an insurance license. In most cases, that's an HMO license, uh, an insurance certificate of authority, or a similar type of state approval. Often, the joint ventures that are developing these offerings will provide vesting rights to potential investors or partners. And you know, speaking about the NAIC, these will trigger what's called a Form A change of ownership filing. Uh, if those rights ever vest uh, and it results in a change of control broadly defined uh, in the insurance plan by greater than 10%. Uh, and once you hit Form A land, um, you're talking about a process that can take many months, uh, can include public hearings, requires background checks of individuals and entities all the way up the chain, you know, the quote unquote character and competence process. Uh, and so when parties are focusing on developing a joint venture, that may support payer operations um, like revenue cycle services uh, to the payer member or other NIC requirements may be triggered. Um, a Form D is required prior to execution of certain intercompany agreements uh, as one example. Um, the Form D is less onerous than a Form A, but it's really nothing to underestimate and it could really increase the timeline and complexity of the joint ventures activities if they start charting into these spaces. Speaking of uh, filings that, that that could push timeline, we haven't even touched on antitrust yet. We've seen both the Department of Justice and Federal Trade Commission rescind prior guidances, um, some relating to what's permitted and not permitted for vertical mergers, as others relating to permissible joint contracting amongst members of an accountable care organization. Now, while at least one draft guidance on mergers more broadly was issued in July of this year, it, it's unclear what the regulators are willing to permit in vertical alignment models in particular and payer-payer joint ventures. What we do know, there are certain underlying concerns that the regulators have with aligned joint ventures and clinically integrated network that were previously permissible, but now they view as having anti-competitive conduct that's impermissible. No, that's right, Devin. Um, you know, this is a really evolving landscape. Um, and one, as someone who doesn't predominantly practice antitrust, we can only hope to, you know, flag and say this really needs to be looked into. Um, but stakeholders need to consider the implications for horizontal or vertical price fixing, uh, in particular between providers who are jointly contracting together in connection with a single payer. Um, the DOJ and FTC are suspect of marketing transparency and data access especially with regard to provider prices or provider rates, because it can lead to anti-competitive coordination, right? That is a historical and longstanding concern. Um, so that the, the DOJ and FTC, in addition to some states through their offices of attorney general, have promulgated guidance encouraging restrictions on provider rate sharing during negotiations, 
Um, and the way this this presents itself is in the course of these deals or even standing up the operations, you want to create firewalls, clean teams, um, and other antitrust considerations that you can monitor uh, through the diligence and build out process. Um, you know, really not to get into it, but just to say there's a lot to be considered in the space that you really want to consult antitrust counsel for. Well, thank you so much, Brett, uh, for talking with me about these important topics. For those of you listening who would like more information on the topics discussed today during the podcast or our healthcare group more broadly, please don't hesitate to reach out and contact myself or Brett. You can also subscribe and listen to other Ropes and Gray podcasts wherever you regularly listen to your podcasts, including on Apple, Google, and Spotify. With that, thanks again for listening. <laughs>